Job chapter 13. Uh, Let me just give you a bit of context so you can understand. It's quite a complicated passage, but a bit of context as to what's happening here. Um, The book of Job is about a man called Job who suffered uh, an immense amount of pain. Uh, He is in real darkness, and uh, the vast majority of the book is poetry, and it's a poetic dialogue between Job and his three friends. Uh, His three friends try to comfort him, and they do a terrible job. They basically accuse him of deserving to suffer because he's got some secret hidden sin. Uh, So these three friends, their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, uh, are speaking to Job, accusing him of this. Uh, And the way the structure of the book works is um, there's three cycles of speeches between Job and his three friends. It begins with Eliphaz speaking, then Job responds, then Bildad speaks, and Job responds, and then Zophar speaks, and Job responds. Um, Now, this is the end of the first cycle of these speeches in chapters 13 and 14. And Job is going to begin by addressing his friends. So, Job chapter 13. Job says to his friends, Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty And I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent, and that would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument, and listen to the pleading of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God, and speak deceitfully for Him? Will you show partiality towards Him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Let me have silence and I will speak. And let come on me what may Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my way to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless cannot come before him. Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. And Job now moves from speaking to his friends to speak directly to God. He says, verse 20, Only grant me two things, and I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call, and I will answer. Or let me speak, and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one 
and bring me into judgment with you. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one, since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you. And you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Look away from him and leave him alone, that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last. And where is he? His waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up. So a man lies down and rises not again till the heavens are no more. He will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol. It's the grave. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave and that you would conceal me until your wrath be past. That you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands, for then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. But the mountain falls and crumbles away and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor and he does not know it. They are brought low and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body and he mourns only for himself. This book is a book that deals with the incredibly complex issue of suffering Uh, and I've been saying every week uh, and the more I study this the more I believe this we desperately need the book of Job one of the the greatest treasures that God has given humanity is this book we really need to know this book because suffering is inevitable for all of us especially if you're a follower of Jesus it's a guarantee almost and we need to the wisdom to endure through suffering when it does come. And that is what the book of Job offers. And for Job's friends, suffering for them comes as a result of sin. That is why you suffer. So therefore, Job must have done something bad to deserve what has happened to him. Uh, We saw last week that his friends, we we were looking at uh, the first of his friends, Eliphaz, we saw that they are cold, callous, religious people who like to have pat answers to the complex issues that surround uh, suffering. And tonight, our big theme from these two chapters is hope. That is what I think these two chapters are all about. But Job begins, first of all, with this rebuke to his three friends. They have failed to give any hope to Job in any way, shape, or form. They have failed to provide any answers. And so, He rebukes them. He calls them, verse 4, worthless physicians. They have prescribed an imaginary illness to Job, his secret sin. They have prescribed this imaginary illness so they can say that they have the cure. 
They whitewash with lies. They are deceptive. The problem with the friends is that they like to tame God. See, for Job, God is wild and untamable and incomprehensible. But the friends have a very small view of God. They're trying to make God look good, as if God needed their help. And often in suffering, I think, just before we go on to look at the the hope in this passage, I, I think this is really key to begin with, because often in suffering, religious people will try to give hope and comfort to others by offering up a tame version of what God is like, a misrepresentation of what God is like, almost to come up with excuses for how he operates in this world. And that kind of fluctuates, I think, between two extremes. Firstly, you've got people like Job's friends, and somebody was saying this to me in the week, that they had heard this from a Christian person. God has caused suffering to happen to you because of something you've done in your life. That's how God operates. It's divine justice. Or, I think, more likely than not, the other way we try and tame God to make him look good and to get the right answers, is to do what nobody in Job does, and that's to downplay God's sovereignty. And to say, well, God didn't want this to happen to you. You've got to understand that. God didn't want this to happen. And both are false misrepresentations of God. God does not need us to make him look good. And we cannot find comfort in falsities. We need hope. If we're to have hope that is it's going to help us through suffering, we need hope that is grounded in truth. Job knows that. We can't just look for religious pat answers. We need to comprehend what is it that God himself says. I was reading, I think it's in The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. Uh, he's got a quote where he says, if religion is the opiate of the masses, then Christianity is the smelling salts. You see, religion may indeed try and dull us to the realities of this world, but we know from looking at the book of Job that that's not the case with the gospel. It awakens us. It gets us to confront these really difficult questions. It's like the smelling salts to cause us to engage with a broken world. So here's what we're going to do this evening as we look at um, this big theme of hope. Uh, first of all, what I want to do is I want to kind of walk us through the poetry again. It's quite complicated, the wordplay, and just try and understand what is the hope that Job longs for. Uh, and then I want us to take it into 2016 uh, in the second part and try and um, get us to see how does this affect us today as Christians. There's stuff that you would have read there that would have made you probably wince as a Christian, uh, and yet there's much here that we need for wisdom. And the way Job responds, I think, is actually very wise in what he says. So firstly then, you look on your service sheet, I've got an outline which I think will be helpful just as we try and navigate through this. Firstly, let's look at the hope that Job longs for to help him through suffering. You see I've got three points underneath that heading. Firstly, Job says that fellowship with God is my greatest need. Uh, We see that in verses 13 through to 22. Um, So Job's friends have failed so far. So Job says, verse 13, Look, can you be silent just for a while? I've been thinking about this. Job's starting to get a bit more level-headed now, slightly less passionate in his outbursts. He's saying, I've been thinking about this, and I want to tell you what I really need. I'm going to put my life in my hands, but what I need here, what will help me, what I desperately need, 
is to speak directly with God. I know that's dangerous. I know that's dangerous because this God is wild. He is untamable. And you don't just walk into his presence. But verse 15. Even if he slays me, I will hope in him. Even if God were to kill me, I would hope in him. That's an astounding verse. See, Job says, even even though it's God who has inflicted me, I cannot see anywhere else outside of him where I could have hope. If there is to be any hope for humanity, it has to come from God himself. It has to. Because if you're suffering, where else are you going to find hope? Friends, family, yes, but they're not big enough. They're not lasting enough. The hope of having that right diagnosis. The hope of being healed. The hope of having those relationships restored that have been broken. would be great, but it's not big enough. It's too frail. Hope that can really help us. Hope that can endure has to come from the one who makes and governs all things. It has to. Even if he kills me, Job says, I cannot leave him. I need him. He will be my hope. And Job knows that the godless can't stand before him, but his salvation will be the fact that he is not godless. Listen to me, my friend, says Job. I've prepared my case. I'm ready to make an appeal directly to God himself. This is what I want. Verse 20 to 22. This is where Job speaks to God. Job steps forward with confidence. And he says, these are my two requests. If I could speak to him. God Please take away the pain that is terrifying me, that you have caused to happen to me. And secondly, God, speak to me. I want to hear you. I want to hear what you have to say. God, I want you, says Job. I don't want you to be this far away, distant entity that we cannot comprehend. I want to speak to you. I want to know that you're there listening to me. You see, Job loves God. Notice that he always recognizes that God is the one who is ultimately behind his suffering because God is the king and ruler of all the universe. Nothing happens out with God's control. But far from that pushing him further away from God and neglecting God, it draws Job to want to get closer to him, to want to understand him. I want you, says Job, please speak to me. And isn't that what we often feel? If you're a Christian who is suffering... Not just, I, 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 I wish I could know you were there. Not that, but I wish I know that you cared about what was happening. I just wish I knew that. It's the normal response of a suffering believer. Secondly, we see Job. That's what he, he needs, but it leads him to meditate on two problems. Secondly, he says, but I recognize that sin and death are a barrier to that. I want fellowship with you, but I know that sin and death make that impossible. He says first about sin, verse 23. Job says, how many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgressions and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Job's saying here that that sinful people, they can't just come before God. They can't. So he asks, tell me, Lord, how many times have I sinned? You see, Job, we saw this back in chapter one. He would have thought that sacrifice would have been enough to cover up his sin. Why is it then that God seems so far? If sin has been dealt with, then surely I can commune with you. 
If you really have forgiven my sin, then why do you seem so distant? Again, let's get this into our head. There is wisdom in this emotional honesty of this suffering man of God. We feel this. It doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. If you're speaking it to God, it means you're being wise. Verse 26, Job asks, Is it because I've inherited the sin of my youth? Remember, we saw Job was blameless and upright. It doesn't mean he was sinless. He's like, is it because of that thing I did when I was young? Is that why you seem to have bound me, God? Is that why you are so silent? And that statement moves Job to reflect on another even bigger barrier and problem that he has for his desire to be with God. And that is death. Verse 28 to uh, verse 12 of chapter 14. Beautiful poem. But it's all about death. <laughs> this is Ecclesiastes on a rainy day. Job's reflecting, not just, he's not just reflecting on himself now. Job's reflecting about the entire human race. Okay, well, how can we have hope when we're just made to die? How can there be any purpose if death is just the fate of us all? We have a few days, Job says. In those days, they are full of trouble and suffering often. We are like a piece of cloth being slowly eaten by moths. We are like a flower that withers. We are, we are a shadow that is fleeting. A mist, a vapor, a breath. God has set us a small amount of time. He has placed a limit on us all. And just think about this. If that is true, if death is real, which we know it is, even though we often live like it isn't, then what hope can you really have in this life? If that's it, you die and you're gone, what hope can you really have? You see, the book of Job gets us to engage our brains as well as our emotions. Use your head. This is the smelling salts. It's not the opiate. If you're going to die, what hope can you really have? I don't know if you've ever seen the film Dead Poets Society. Um, it's a great film. I'm trying to get the kids in youth church to call me Captain My Captain. Um, but in that film, you may sound weird if you've not seen it, um, Robin Williams is trying to teach his, uh, his, his students um, to appreciate life and to enjoy poetry. And he takes them down to the foyer in the school that he's teaching, and he shows them pictures of all these students that had died long ago. And he says to his students, remember, gentlemen, that in the end you are nothing more than food for worms. So therefore, seize the day. Carpe diem. Enjoy the days that you have. But here's the problem with that way of thinking. It sounds great in some sense, but what if you can't? What if you are experiencing hardships? Because Job says our days are short and they'll be full of trouble. What hope really is there if we're just food for worms? It's not good enough for Job because death kills all hope. Verse 7, even a tree has a better hope than us. At least when a tree is destroyed, it can grow back again. But man, verse 11, is not like a cut down tree. He is more like a dried up riverbed. Once he's gone, he's gone. How can I have fellowship with God if that is what is true? But, but, verse 13. Job in these verses <laughs> starts to contradict everything he's just said. See, death is a finality, but it's as if he goes on to say, well, well, hold on, wait a second. What if it's not? What if there's something more? This is the third point. 
Therefore, resurrection would be my only hope. Verse 13, oh God, it would be great if you could hide me in the grave. When I die, if you could just keep me there and cause your wrath and your anger for all the wrongdoing I've done in my life to pass over me, then set a time, God, in which you will remember me and bring me back to life. See, the seeds of hope are starting to take root in Job now. This is starting to be something, well, well, what if this was true? And next week we'll see, by the time we get to chapter 19, it becomes a certainty for Job that this will be true. Read with me some of the most moving verses in the entire book. One of the most essential verses of where to have wisdom and real hope. Verse 14. Job asks the question, If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal or my resurrection should come. You would call and I would answer you. Why? Because you long for me. You made me and you would long for the work of your hands. Remember Job's longing in verse 22 of chapter 13. His request, God, I pray that you would call and answer me. He seems to be saying here, now, I know you will call. When I'm dead, you will call and I will answer. Because I know that you long for me. I know that you love me. And I know that death itself cannot be a barrier. Even the finality of death cannot be a barrier to that. And I know then, O God, that you would take my sin and remove it from me forever. Verse 16 to 17. Seems to be saying here, it would be as if you took all the wrong of my life and you were to just tie it up in a bag and throw it away. I know that's what you'll do. Cover up all my iniquity for all eternity. What magnificent words of faith from a man in the depths of depression and despair. It's astonishing. Uh, Job, you spoke truer words than you could ever realize. And it would be great if you finished there. I really kind of, I was tempted in prepping this to stop there. But he doesn't, does he? Verses 18 to 22. But, but no one can prevent the reality of sin and death. It erodes mankind as waters erode the rock. It erodes all hope. Man is all alone under the judgment of God. It would be great if resurrection was true. But how could that be possible? You see, there was a glimmer of hope as, as if on a rainy day the clouds broke apart for a brief while to let a beam of sun shine through, but the darkness is back for Job. Job often oscillates between hope and despair and actually we'll see his hope gets stronger and stronger as his friends get angrier and angrier. He often oscillates between hope and, hope and despair and anger and desire. And again, it highlights the realism of suffering because that is what we often do. So what can we take from this? this? That's what Job is saying. He wants fellowship with God. He recognizes sin and death are a barrier to that. And therefore, the only hope he really has is in resurrection. What do we take from this as Christians? This is the second point. The hope Christians have to help them through suffering. See, Job longed for something here that we today as Christians already have. This was thousands of years before Jesus Christ. This is one of the oldest books in the Bible. Thousands and thousands of years. And what Job wished for against impossible odds is something that we have seen happen through Jesus. 
Now, just before we look at the second point, it's important you don't mishear what I'm saying. I am not in any way trying to downplay what what Job is feeling as if to say, well, we don't need to react like this because we've got Jesus. I'm not saying that. Even with Jesus, we can feel the same as Job. We often do, and it's wise to acknowledge that, that that's okay. But Jesus doesn't discredit in any way this passage or, or numb it. He illuminates and magnifies the brilliance of the longing that Job has. We can still have the same anguish and the same longings as Job. It's important we do. But we do have something that Job never had that that he wished he had had. And that was certainty. Certainty. Our hope is not wish fulfillment, but it's grounded in truth. You see, before the time of Jesus, God's people, they had this notion of resurrection but it was very unclear. And when Jesus arrived in human history, I mean, this is God himself coming down to us. He brought a deeper knowledge of truth, a deeper knowledge of a wisdom that Job felt God was hiding from him. Jesus revealed something that we and Job needed. He shows us that resurrection is true. And this is not wish fulfillment for a suffering believer. It's not airy-fairy thinking. This is a desire that God has implanted in the hearts of every human being. And it's something that Jesus confirms, not by telling us, but by showing us that it's true. After his death, three days, Jesus rises from the grave, never to die again. Jesus is the answer to Job's question in verse 14. He's the only one who could answer that question. Our hope is grounded on his resurrection. As the Apostle Paul says, if that's not true, then everyone in this room who follows Jesus is to be pitied more than anyone else in this world because you have believed a lie and you have no hope outside the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the basis for all our hope. You need this. You suffering believer, you need this. Otherwise, suffering will swallow us whole. So how does Jesus' resurrection meet the longings of a suffering believer like Job? Well, these are the two anchors of hope that Job wanted and that we have in Jesus. You'll see them on your sheet there. Firstly, sin is removed and we now have fellowship with God, permanent fellowship. Our biggest problem is that we, not, we cannot come before this wild, untamable God with sin in our lives that is not punished. Job knows that. Verse 16, the godless cannot stand before God. Chapter 13, verse 23 to 24, make me know my transgressions. Why do you treat me as your enemy? Verse 4 of chapter 14, who can bring a clean thing out of something that is unclean? This is the problem Jesus came to fix. This is why he broke into human history. When Jesus was crucified, he was taking the punishment for our sins. He was removing what is wrong and filthy and unclean in our lives and placing it upon himself. And he suffered the punishment that we deserved so that we wouldn't have to. And therefore, we who follow Jesus can say with confidence that we do not suffer now because God is punishing us. Jesus has already taken any punishment that you or I deserve. God does not punish us. And we drift into thinking that that God must be punishing me for something I've done. No way. God has punished Jesus for all the wrong that we have done. Job wanted God to keep no record 
to tie up his sin in a bag, to cover up all his iniquities. And the cross was the moment where God fulfilled Job's desire. And therefore, because that's true, because sin has been removed, what does that mean about us and our relationship with this God? It means that we are perfectly loved by Him and in constant fellowship with Him. There is no distance between us and Him. There is never, ever a moment as a follower of Jesus where you are far from God and where God does not love you as much as He loves His own Son. That is the reality. But that doesn't mean that we don't feel what Job says. Sometimes, especially in times of darkness, we do feel that we are not in fellowship with God. As if he's treating us like an unforgiven sinner. In preparing for looking through the book of Job uh, over the holidays, um, at Christmas time I read A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's very interesting. It's um, C.S. Lewis recording the time his wife Joy died um, by cancer and just what it made him feel. And it's interesting contrasting the two books that he wrote on suffering, The Problem of Pain and um, A Grief Observed, um, because they're very different. One's kind of more philosophical, but one's more like Job and dealing with the emotional rawness of suffering. And C.S. Lewis wrote this one night. This was his journal. This is what he felt. He wrote this in A Grief Observed. Look for God when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the window. It may be an empty house. Was it ever ever inhabited? It seemed to be so once. That is what he felt at that moment. And it's interesting, if you read the book, that's not the end for Lewis. There's a development in his thought and his feelings. But that's what many may feel. But however, that doesn't necessarily mean it's true because what we feel cannot be used as a basis for our hope because what we feel changes all the time. So if that is, you keep knocking at that door. As a forgiven sinner, you have God's ear. God listens to you. And the way that God says, look, let me show you that I am always there, even when it seems like I'm not. Let me show you that I love you unconditionally and I'm in fellowship with you. Is to give up the most precious thing he has for our sake. And that's his son. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who is there who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? No one. It's God who justifies. Do you long for him? Keep pursuing him. And one day, maybe in this life, maybe in the next you will look back and you see what you couldn't see at the time, that God was with you in the crisis, drawing you ever closer to himself, making himself more real to you and making you more dependent upon him. Finally, second anchor of hope that the resurrection of Jesus gives us, that Job longed for, it assures us that death is defeated and we will be renewed by God. What a beautifully tragic poem verse 1 to 12 is of chapter 14. Death is the greatest tragedy of humanity. And I think the only way that we often deal with it 
is to ignore it. We don't think about it. Even at funerals, we don't like people to talk about death. We, we diminish it. We say it's something it's not. We try and sugarcoat it. But we need to get real about death if we're to have wise, if we're to be wise and to have any hope. John 11. Jesus stands before the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He's not stoic, Jesus. Not in any way. And Jesus and Job teach us that stoicism is totally inappropriate. He stands there at the funeral of his friend in front of this tomb. And he knows that he's about to raise this man from the grave. Jesus has the power to do that. In fact, Jesus deliberately let his friend die so that he could show people that he has the power to raise him from the grave. He stands there in front of Lazarus' tomb and he breaks down in tears. John actually says that he is filled with an animal-like anger and fury as he stands in front of this tomb. And why would he be like that? Lazarus is going to live anyway. Well, Jesus is like that because he is not just looking at the death of his friend, but he is looking at death itself. He stares down the corridor of time. He sees the destructive power of death and what it has caused to happen to humanity. Jesus hates death. Like Job, it is the ultimate blasphemy. It's the undoing of what God made and declared to be good. This is not what's meant to happen to us. And the horrendous nature of death causes Jesus to break down and weep. We can still believe in resurrection and weep. In fact, we must weep if we are to be wise. But Jesus, with the tears streaming down his face, walks towards this tomb and yells at this tomb, Lazarus, come out! John eleven fifty three, very short verse, the dead man walked out. Job 14, verse 15. You would call, and I would answer. Jesus hates death, but he has power over it. And he approaches the tomb of Lazarus as a warrior, approaching the last great enemy. He dealt a blow, but it wasn't until Jesus stepped into the tomb himself that he achieved total victory. When he walked out that tomb, it was the sign that death had been defeated. The weapon of Satan has now become the victory of Christ. And so it shall be for all who trust him. Death is destroyed, defeated. It has no power over those in Jesus. Even though we die, we will live again. We have the hope of renewal, as Job says. And God says to you here tonight, suffering believer, if this is you, that what has happened happening to you now is not the end but there will be a moment that is guaranteed where he will wipe away all your tears and call you to himself for all eternity why because of job 14 15 because he longs for you god made you and he will not let you go if you follow jesus he will call you because he longs for you satan's suffering and death cannot quench god's longing his desire his love for his creation And all the brokenness we face now will be used as servants for our joy and eternity. It's not that resurrection or heaven is some compensation for having a bad life here. That's not it. It's that God is using the sufferings that we experience now as the sovereign God of all to build up for us a weight of glory that is incomparable. That's our hope. 
And I don't know if you've ever been in the deep pits of depression like Job is and has been. And if you have, you may feel that, 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 that depression is such a frozen feeling. But it can start to be slowly thawed by the love of Christ, where lights of hope pierce through the clouds of darkness, but it may never be fully restored, not until the resurrection or the renewal, as Job calls it. That's what we must get in our heads. That is what we must look towards. Let me just close with this illustration. I used this exact illustration when we preached through 1 Peter, so please forgive me for being unoriginal, uh, and when I tell you where it's from, you will not be surprised. It's from Lord of the Rings. Um, But I've preached two sermons now without mentioning Lord of the Rings, so now's the time to mention it. In the novel, I just love this. I I think it's so well written and so in line with what we're seeing here. In the book, um, the two protagonists, Frodo and Sam, they're lying in despair, They're in a dark land. It looks like the quest that they've undertaken uh, is about to fail and that the world that they live in is going to be consumed in darkness and hopelessness. But as they're lying there in this land, Sam catches a glimpse of something beautiful. And this is what Tolkien writes in the book. They are peeping above the cloud rack, above a dark tower high up in the mountains. Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. And the beauty of it smote his heart as he looked out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was a light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Now for a moment, his own fate, even his master's, ceased to trouble him and he crawled into a deep untroubled sleep. See, the shadows of suffering are just a passing thing. Don't look to yourself if you're suffering for hope. Don't become introspective, but look to Jesus. He is the light and the high beauty beyond the shadow of suffering. And when you glimpse that like a shaft piercing your heart, you'll realize that there is hope that no darkness can hide. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Oh, Job longed for this. He longed for it and he knew you and he knew that somehow you would make this possible even if at the time he couldn't see how blinded as he was by his pain and his suffering and yet he did not give up on you. He held on to you because even if you were to slay him he would hope in you. There's nothing outside of you. Job needed you and Father we need you. We need you to impress upon us the truths of the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. The certainties that we have. Father, help us not to view them as just like a fairy tale, but help us to view them as what they are, as real and true and profound. Help us to approach suffering with the faith and endurance of Job. To approach it like Jesus did, weeping and mourning at the brokenness that it causes but always trusting that he has power to do something about it. Father, help us now to learn the wisdom of Job and to hold on to the hope of resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.